Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Said the topic for today for I want to talk to you about is is Jewish peacemaking and just give me a show of hands now if you've experienced conflict at home. How about conflict at work? How about conflict in your broader community, whether it's your synagogue, your neighborhood, wherever you are? Okay, so for the audience at home, everyone raise their hand for every one of those uh, questions. Let me have a couple of examples of, uh, of conflicts. And, uh, you know, you don't have to get too personal, but why don't you give me a couple of examples of the kind of conflict. Yes, and say your name so I get My name is Andrea. Hi, Andrea. Okay, around. Report cards just came out uh, where I live also. So, uh, yep, that's fine. And you guys have some disagreement about the grades. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay, how about a couple other examples? Well, of course, it was more recently the election. Mm-hmm. Very good friends who have different views. So that's, that's sure. Really sure, a lot of people experience that now in our communities. Yep. Right, so at work and different priorities. And, and All right, so these conflict is a part of our life. Um, does anyone here, uh, or, or raise your hand if you enjoy conflict? Okay, so everyone's experienced conflict, but no one here raises anything they enjoy conflict. So that's a, there's something to look at there. And peacemaking is a very uh, central value in Judaism that I think has been not explored as much as it could be explored. When we think about peace, often people are thinking about global issues, Israel, Palestinians, things like that. Uh, I want to bring it down for us today to really peace in the home, peace in our workplaces, really daily peace. And then we could see if we want to talk about it, maybe expand on some of those ideas to broader community issues and, and global issues. But I want to start at home and, and, and more in our communities because Judaism really has a lot of wisdom uh, to say about that. If you look on your source sheet, the first source is from Mishnah Uksin which is actually the very last uh, teaching in the Talmud. Uh, uh, after um, many, 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 hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teachings, <clears throat> it comes to this and it has this to say at the end. Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta said, Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace, is the best vessel for holding blessing. As it says, and then it quotes from Psalms, God gives God's people strength, God blesses God's people with peace. Adonai oz the amo yitain, Adonai yavarech et amo ba shalom. So the whole end of the of Jewish law comes down to this: that if we want to really contain blessing from God, peace is necessary. And shalom, this word shalom in Hebrew, it means shalem. It's related to shalem means whole or complete, uh, and and so peace is something that can hold lots of different parts. Why do you think it would be the best vessel for blessing? First of all, what is blessing? First of all, blessing, we say bracha, blessing is a, uh, an overflow, a, a, a flow of abundance, uh, giving. Why would, why would shalom be the blessed blessing for holding that? And we may not be able to answer that until the end of this class, but any thoughts at this point? Yeah, Shimon. Uh, it's not that blessing doesn't exist when it's not shalom. It's just that it's very hard to experience all the good things in your life mm-hmm. when there's a lot of conflict. You're kind of psychologically so immersed in the negative 
that you can't experience those blessings without all faith. Nice. Okay, so your attention is drawn to other. No one raised their hand that they like conflict. So, and we all experience lots of conflict. So you're maybe not as open. And we know when you enter into conflict, uh, often people's fight-flight mechanisms are kicked in, and so you're feeling you're feeling stressed. Your cortisol levels are rising, and you're not able to really think in a sense of abundance. It's, it's you're more tight. And there's lots of research about this. What happens to people in conflict around? Um, going into what we call motivated reasoning and uh, confirmation bias. Where, and we're seeing tons of this now in the political spectrum, where you, you basically you're just looking to have your beliefs proved by what anyone else is saying. And when someone speaks who's saying something that challenges your position, you're only looking to cut them down. You're not, you're not having a kind of an openness to be able to really take in what people say. And, and this is a big challenge to us I, in the political realm. In the Jewish community, uh, we really struggle around this, around people's different perspectives around Israel. Uh, it's why it gets so hard to talk about these issues in ways that feel meaningful and generative and open. And I think that dynamic is what Shmuel is saying as well, that we just can't, we're, we're not open in a way to be able to accept blessing uh, when we're not um, feeling peace, which is a lot of the time. So if you can really cultivate the shalom, cultivate the sense of peace, you can actually experience blessing more. Any other thoughts on that before we move on? Okay, so that's just setting it up at the beginning, how central, how central peace is. And my own personal interest in this comes from, I grew up, people were just fighting all the time. It was in my family or the, you know, the guys I was hanging out with, uh, beating each other up all the time. It was just a lot of fighting all the time. I don't, I don't know why boys were doing that necessarily, but... It was just, just all around. I never really got it. I'm like, kind of, what? what's going on here? So peace was something that always interested me. How do, you, how do you create it? So look at the second source. The reason that it's not so easy just to have peace is because we have conflicting values. So I'm thinking about the issue of budget. You have, you know, your, your athletic department and your education department, and they both have really just claims to why they need a certain, uh, you know, the $1,000 or this $1,000. And we don't have enough in the budget to do both. But they really have a just claim. So justice is often going to be in conflict with peace. And why sometimes peace gets a bad name. Um, and certainly, and I've spent a lot of time in, uh, in Israel. Um, and, and peace is seen as not such a positive thing by a lot of people because it feels like peace means, um, peace means giving up you know, things that are really essential to you. And it's, it's seen as uh, not just. You know, I have a just claim, then uh, peace, I mean, so I have to compromise this to have peace. Well, I'm giving up something really essential to me, and that's seen as a negative thing. Again, I think we're seeing that also in our country as well. But just bringing it back down to an organization, the two departments really have a just claim. And why should they give up? Why should they give up their claim? You know, they have a lot of kids that want to serve in athletics, or they have a lot of people they need to teach. Why should they give that up? So peace and justice can often be in conflict with each other, and for good reasons. Any comments on that or thoughts on that? I want to look at um, a couple of perspectives of how to, um, not compromise, but how to work peace and justice together. It might be in a different way. Because if we're just looking at strict justice, well, then peace is giving up on that. Peace is a compromise that doesn't, doesn't make sense. It's not going to answer strict justice. So, um, yeah, let's, let's look at the next piece. My colleague, uh, David Hoffman, who is a uh, uh, litigator in Boston, um, he described this to me this way about this conflict between peace and justice. He said that for him, when he was coming out of law school, he really wanted to work on issues of justice, social justice, and he really felt like being a litigator and using the power of the law, the hammer of justice, was going to be the best way to do this. And he said what he found over his time working at and, and, and working and doing some test cases with the Massachusetts Supreme Court and other places that when you can um, just hit it just right and say you have a big test case on something around discrimination, something like that, and you can 
bring that hammer of justice down, just right, right on that link of the chain of oppression and break it open, you really can make a difference. But what he said he found was, in 90% of the time, what you're dealing with in court is, it's really destructive. Because when you're dealing with family issues or things in communities where people are having ongoing relations with each other, the litigation process brings out really the worst in people and their most adversarial sides of people and causes real pain and suffering and harm in addition to what really needs to be there. So David made a decision, and he recently is uh, a TEDx talk about this, to never go to court again. He actually ended up uh, being trained in mediation and founding a law firm called the Boston Law Collaborative that just does arbitration and mediation. Um, because he feels like for those 90% of the cases, this was a much more effective way uh, than just going to strict justice. So when, I think you have to know when you're going to take a perspective of strict justice and when not, and in which places that's important and when it's not. And when there's ongoing relationships at stake, it's usually not the best, uh, not the best approach. Um, so let's take a look at a couple of sources here. Uh, so we're on page two. And this is source three. <clears throat> Pirkei Avot, Mishnah Avot. The first chapter says, Hillel says, be like the students of Aharon. Oh, I have a different, I may have a different, uh, different copy than you all do. So it's source three. It says, Mishnah Avot 112. Hillel said, be like the students of Aharon, love peace, pursue peace, love all people, and bring them close to Torah. There are two places in, um, in our five books of Moses in the Torah uh, where it says to pursue something. One is to pursue peace. And actually in the bigger Torah, it says, Rodev Shalom, that's in Psalms, not in the five books of Torah. So it says to be a Rodev Shalom, to pursue peace, Bakashad from Radfehu. And we're supposed to pursue something else. What's the other thing we're supposed to pursue? People know? We're supposed to pursue Tzedek. Exactly. Justice, justice, pursue. You shall pursue. So the two things we're told to pursue are actually two things that can often be in tension with each other. Um, so let's take a look here at a couple of uh, commentators of how do we bring these things together. So uh, Rabbi Don Yitzhak Abarbanel, a uh, 16th century commentator, late, late 15th, 16th century in uh, um, Italy, Spain, says, Nachalot Avot is commentary to Pirkei Avot. He says, and this is a, I'm using a translation by Dr. Daniel Roth, who is a uh, real leader in the Jewish world right now at uh, promoting uh, the understanding of peace in, in Jewish wisdom. He says, uh, commentating, commenting on uh, this, this, this comment of Hillel in Pirkei Avot, that one should be a lover of peace and pursue peace, he says, and indeed, the words of Shalom, peace, that Hillel mentions in our Mishnah and in all places that Shalom is mentioned in Scripture, the commentaries thought that its meaning is always about agreement between two conflicting parties. Right? Got it. So, right, there's a, there's a fight, and Shalom is helping people overcome that fight. He's saying that's what most people are assuming. And therefore, they explain, quote, a lover of Shalom and a pursuer of Shalom as follows, that a person should make peace between his or her friends who are fighting. Right? You should come in, help people understand each other, and not. But he critiques this, and he says that's not the only way to think about it. He says, as if the matter of shalom, according to them, does not happen unless there is a fight and a conflict beforehand. This is like saying there is no string without a hole. Meaning, like, imagine a, um, uh, a, a, a sweater or something, a woven sweater out of yarn, and if you were going to pull a string out of that sweater, there'd have to be a hole left there to get that string. So he's saying that you don't, peace does not always depend on there actually being conflict. And so now he's going to explain it. He says, and behold, they, the other commentaries, did not know the great value of Shalom, and they did not see its preciousness and the splendor of its greatness. Since, in addition to it being said with regard to the agreement between conflicting parties, as they thought, behold, and this is his new point, behold, Shalom is also said, other than the context of fighting and conflicts, with regard to the common good, and with regard to the agreement of people and their mutual love, which is the necessary component in the gathering of a nation. And it is the string that ties together and combines everything. Okay, this is important. I think it's important for our nation right now, but if we want to think about it also for our families and our, our communities. He's saying, don't just think of Shalom 
as overcoming conflicts that are there. Shalom is actually a proactive effort to help people identify what are the common values that tie together a collective. What are the common values that tie together a family? You know, I did this with my family the other day. It was uh, during the uh, high holidays. And I said to them, as Shmuley said, I'm, I'm a teacher of, uh, and a practitioner of Musar. Musar is Jewish ethical development. So thinking a lot about what are the main character traits I need to work on. I do this with organizations. I help them figure out what are their character traits. So I said to my family, like, what are our, what are our key midot, our key character traits for our family? I have a small family, my wife and two boys are teenagers. And they said, um, my son said uh, something called zrizut, which is uh, alacrity, get up and go, taking care of business. You know, sometimes we let stuff slide. We don't, you know, we say we're going to do something, we don't. It's like our family needs to do that more. And we said, what is something we do? I think what he said, some, the other one was, I think, fun <laughs> or simcha. Like we, like we, have, we have fun, but we want to have more fun. And so what, our, what that exercise did for us was it identified what are our core values as a family that we can point to, take pride in, work on, and that helps build shalom in the family because we can say, like, this is what we're about is these things. And I think that goes for companies, organizations, communities, and nations. I think our nation, we're at a point right now where we really need to do that very badly. Um, and so shalom, again, to emphasize, is not just a reactive stance to conflict, but it's a proactive effort to help people in a collective identify what is it that we really share and ties us together. I'm going to keep going, but if people have comments or want to jump in or have a thought, please, you know, please jump in. It will be like a, a group chavrutu, a small group today, so we can do that. Okay, so that's, that, that, that's one important piece of shalom to remember. It's not just response to conflict, but it's building uh, um, values that are in common. Okay, the next piece is from Rabbi uh, Joseph Bear Soloveitchik, of Soloveitchik in, uh, where he talks in, a, in, a, in an essay about justice. And he's going to talk directly about the tension between justice and, uh, and truth. And he says, uh, justice and peace, I mean. He says, in dealing with imperfect man, we posit that no man is totally wrong or right, and that in a case of the litigants, both are partially right and wrong. Okay, so you got that? So now we're in an adversarial situation. People are coming, one saying like, he did it, he did it, or you know, this guy wronged me. No, I didn't wrong him. And he's saying that there's partial truth on both sides. He says the application of judgment, or what's called din in Hebrew, can only take account of obvious surface conditions. It fails to perceive subtleties underneath, which dilute our certainty about the right and the wrong of the litigants. Okay, so I wonder if anyone had experience like this, where you know, you're talking to someone, they're in a dispute. I don't know if anyone's had this role where you're trying to help people solve a problem. And again, this can be family members, whatever. And you're listening to them, and you're kind of seeing like, yeah, you're kind of like mostly right, but I also see how you're also wrong, and this other person's right. Okay, that, if you really listen to people who are in conflict, you generally can find that. It's rare that one party is like completely wrong 100% the whole way. There's usually some claim that's right. So that's what he's saying. He's saying on kind of the surface level, one party may be more said, more correct, more right, but really there's right on both sides. Each has some responsibility for the situation and is partially guilty of the misunderstanding for misleading innuendos or for contributing indirectly to a climate in society which places others at a disadvantage. There's lots of ways. If we were going to play this out in examples, we could, we could show this. Strict justice deals with plain facts and salient reality. Just like kind of what's here right now, what's presenting. Real responsibility, however, goes much deeper and is obscured from the scrutiny of the court. Metaphysically, no one is entirely absolved in situations of conflict. Okay, that's no one. It says no one, metaphysically, on a spiritual level, no one is entirely absolved in situations of conflict. Okay, and I want you to push back here if you, if you don't agree with this. Sedek, therefore, or justice, is truly realized only through what's called pashara, a compromise, which declares the parties both winners and losers. Thus, Peshara compromise is not only socially desirable, but it is also morally just. 
The principle of tzedek, justice, demands that mishpat, which are court rulings, reflect the existential condition of man's inevitable perfect, imperfection. This is very deep what he's saying here. Uh, and, and again, people may push back because he's saying that um, Peshar is not only socially desirable, morally just. Com- that's compromise. And someone could argue, like, no, what are you talking about? That's the opposite. That's morally corrupt. You're, you're, you're basically equating, you know, a victim and a persecutor and, you know, and saying they both have some thing that was involved in this. Like, how, like how's that moral to do that? I think there's a question we can ask on this text, and I wonder if there are situations where Rav Soloveitchik would say this does not apply, maybe in a situation of real abuse uh, and domination, where the domination is almost complete. But I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would say that you know, if you really look at both sides, there's always going to be something, something there, okay? So let's think about this for a bit. Let's try to play this out. Think of some conflicts that you're thinking about uh, or that you maybe mentioned before. Some are easier than others. Again, I think budget conflicts, probably you can see the good on both sides pretty easily. But what are some? Let's, let's get some examples on the table here uh, that may seem like, you know, no, one side's definitely right. But if you really look at it closely, you see at least some um, responsibility that's shared. Right. That's what I was thinking too. Right. Right. So one, you could think that justice would be on the side of, let's just say, the side of your child, and like whatever the issues are, those need to be met because it's a state responsibility to meet the child, provide those needs. But you can see, like, there's also responsibility too on the part of the family or the child to, you know, be showing up or or whatever resources they need to. But also, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think um, if we look at kind of most conflicts that happen throughout our lives, throughout our days, I think these things really make a lot of sense. Maybe in extreme ends, like we just talked about rape or other things, um, not so much. But I think for most of the things we're going to encounter, this approach is going to be really useful. If you feel yourself in this place of like righteousness and like this is I am right, I am right, probably looking at, like, you know, real justice means actually seeing, like, what my contribution is also into this, uh, into this issue. That's what Rav Zolvechik said. Okay? Any other thoughts or comments on that before we move on? All right. So now, so we've talked about uh, the conflict between peace and justice, some ways of, uh, of, of bringing those into relationship with each other, both by finding the common values in a collective and by seeing that both sides in a conflict have some responsibility in there. So actually real deep justice is acknowledging that and having some kind of compromise. So now I want to look at the role of the peacemaker. And uh, we may play that role ourselves at different times. We have someone else come and play that role with us. Uh, and, and we have some very useful wisdom in our tradition. So again, we saw before Hillel saying, that be like the students of Aharon. Now, Aharon, Aharon the Kohen, who uh, was Moshe's, Moses' brother. Uh, and Moses was often seen as the model of strict justice. And Aharon, Aaron the Kohen, was seen as the, uh, um, the peacemaker. And so, Avot Rabbi Natan, which is a commentary on Pirkei Avot, comments on this about what would Aharon do? Why was he called the, the peacemaker? Why was he called the pursuer of peace in our tradition? So it describes this following encounter. It says, when two men were in a conflict, Aaron would go and sit with one of them. He would say to him, my son, look at your friend. Look at what he is saying. He is tearing at his heart and ripping his clothing. He says, woe is me. How can I lift my eyes and see my friend? I am ashamed before him, for it is I who wronged him. 
end quote. And Aaron would stay with him until he removed all the jealous rage from his heart. Okay, so you got that, what he's doing? Okay, there's two people in a fight. Aaron's going to one of them and making up the story that the other guy is so upset that he's wronged uh, this first guy that Aaron's sitting with. And Aaron sits with him until the rage leaves from his heart. And Aaron would then go to the other man and say, quote, my son, look at your friend. Look at what he's saying. He's tearing at his heart and ripping his clothing. He says, woe is me. How can I lift my eyes and see my friend? I am ashamed before him, for it is I who wronged him, end quote. And Aaron would stay with him until he removed all the jealous rage from his heart. And when these two people would finally meet later somewhere, they would hug and embrace and kiss each other. Therefore, it is stated, they wept for our own 30 days, even all the house of Israel. When our own died, at the end of the Israelites wandering in the desert, they mourned for him 30 days because they lost the person who could do this kind of thing. Okay, so what are a few things we take out from this? What do you see? What are, what are, what are, what's the story teaching us about how to make peace? Get out of your own head. So get out of your own head, get in the other person's. Now he's helping him do that, and it's maybe not completely true what the other person is doing, but again, try to see what the other person is going for the other person, okay? There's some other things we can pick up from our own, or how the tradition is describing the story. So, I mean, I, I think my natural inclination in some ways to how we how we define is just to show empathy and trust, and agree with that, mm-hmm. right, in a sort of pastoral sense. Mm-hmm. But uh, that doesn't necessarily foster peace. That just kind of comforts the person. Right. Um, so part of it is kind of what you said is to cultivate empathy for the other side. But the way of doing it is not to say that they're right, and they're mm-hmm. wrong, but to kind of uh, show that they're also having a personal struggle with this as well. That's what it's sort of helpful model for doing. Yeah, it's going right to where his you know pain is, right. and not necessarily his position or whatever the fight was about. You know, we don't even hear. We don't even know what the fight's about. Right, they're not they're not in the conflict. These people we don't know what had happened, it happened somewhere, but they're not talking to each other, they're you know, that that guy said this to me. They're, but they're not together anymore. It's not the heat of the moment. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. There's another uh, comment in Pirkei Vod. It says, don't, you know... When someone's really angry, that's not the time to come tell them to calm down. You know, people have to work through things. So, is that what else? Anything else you see here that our own does? That's uh, something we can pick up if we want to be peacemakers. Yeah. Yep. The third party's making the step, right. So good. So let me pick up on a few of these things and then jump in if you have others. I want to point out some important things. So I want to start with that, uh, is that he pursues peace. He was not asked. We don't have in the story that people called him. They called the local mediation center in Scottsdale and said, we're going to come meet with you and that. No, he's a pursuer of peace. He sees that as part of his human job description. Maybe it was a job description as the high priest, but he sees it as part of who he is in the world to pursue peace. So he goes and he sees, wow, these people, uh, now I don't think he doesn't know them either. He knows them. They know who he is. And he comes in and he inserts himself. He has a relationship with these people. And what, what I want to talk about here is the difference between this and what we have in kind of modern Western peacemaking and, uh, and, and, and mediation conflict resolution, which is a much more professionalized kind of um, uh, almost therapeutic model, 
and which has a lot of good things about it. But just, there's some important differences here in a Jewish model, religious model, um, that it, it was not anonymous in some way. You're going to some anonymous third party that no, no one knows. He knows the people. There's an existing relationship. And he inserts himself. Two, he meets with them separately. He doesn't bring the part. At no point in this story does he bring the parties together. There's something called the contact hypothesis that is used in peacemaking, that especially peacemaking between groups of people that generally don't have any contact with each other. And the idea behind it is that people are in conflict with each other and, and because they don't know each other. And if they get to know each other, some of that conflict will break down. And there's, there's a lot of research around this in, in places where it works, places it doesn't work. Um, this is not that approach. This is an approach that says that a lot of important work in peacemaking can happen with the parties separate. They're not with each other at all. You don't have to. It's not the, it's not the kind of like, I got the meeting, you know, and I got them together to sit down at the table, and that's the victory. Again, that can work, but this is really saying something different. You want to make a space in people's hearts that they want to meet each other. That's what the peacemaker is doing here. He's doing the work one-on-one -on -one with them to, whether it's creating empathy or seeing the human in the other, whatever it is, but they then want, and their heart is open to be able to bring in the other person. You're not like strong-arming them to get together. That's two. Three, he listens empathically and he helps them release their rage. So again, that's another part, is really listening to people, listening to that. We don't know detail what he did there at the end of the story, but it says he would stay with him until he removed all the jealous rage from his heart. So he's probably doing a lot of listening to him at that point. Four, he spends a lot of time with them. This is not probably not a 50-minute session. You know, he, he says he stayed with him until he removed all the jealous rage from his heart. Traditional peacemaking models, whether they're from Judaism or from the Arab world or from different places, they sometimes take days where a delegation will go. In, in the Arab world, you see this. Uh, a delegation of elders uh, will go visit. You know, they know they're here. There's a conflict. They'll show up at someone's house. And they'll, they'll be there. They'll be around for a few days while this thing is worked out. So it's just a very different pace than what we are used to in, uh, in our society here. Um, but it's really spending time with people. And then five, the connector role. So Aaron, in this, in this picture here, both parties know him. And it helps the parties feel connected and hopeful because they have a trusted person in common. So my colleague and teacher on this, Dana Roth, talks about uh, he was doing some work with around this peacemaking work in a Jewish community in the States that it was between, not between, he was working with the Federation that uh, was a little more conservative politically, and he was working with a kind of younger, young adult peace and justice group, which was more uh, liberal uh, politically. And there was a lot of tension between those two groups. And it uh, did something for them when they, they heard that he was working with both of them separately. They're like, wait, you're working with those guys? Wait, you're working with those guys? That created a bridge for these different groups uh, of trust. That, huh, okay, hmm, we trust you. They seem to trust you, so maybe there's some possibility. It's like a transitive property of trust. Maybe there's some possibility that we can then trust the other people. Without bringing anyone together or doing anything like that. It's just playing that connector role. So I think for people who want to um, occupy this kind of role of a peacemaker or be this in, in some ways in their life, Cultivating relationships with really different kinds of people is a very, very important role so that, you know, conservatives or liberals or whatever, however you want to break it down, have some common people that they know that they can talk to and are known that are talking to both. It does something. It's important kind of weave and connector in our communities. Okay. Any other comments or thoughts on this, on this role of the peacemaker? Some of these... Some of these things that seem like uh, Aaron is doing. Yeah, sure. Just the part that it has to happen in the heart is that like it's not just an external process. Mm -hmm. Like you know, it has to be an internal shift. 
Right. No, it's not right. It's very superficial. Uh, if there's not actually also the shift of the heart. Okay, let's 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 go on. So we all said before we don't like conflict. There is, and and also I would say for the most part, uh, religious traditions, for the most part, also don't like conflict. Um, traditional religious hierarchies are set up in a lot of ways to really minimize conflict because we see over you know millennia and generations how destructive conflict can be. So conflict in a lot of ways is often uh, tr tried to paper it over, uh, have compromise, and do that. We have one place in Judaism where conflict is really seen as a positive virtue. You know where that is? Hmm? <laughs> okay. Whoever gets it, there's nice cupcakes that you can have <laughs> for a prize. Well, uh, well I, mean, I would say uh, in your ethics, sometimes you're allowed to go to war. Okay, but that's not seen as positive. That's seen as a. Uh, where's where's actually conflict seen as positive? It's like a positive value and cultivated. Thank you. Right, exactly. So in learning, that's like the one place where you really see it in in Jewish culture where it's really emphasized. And again, I'm not an expert on this. I, I did some research on my sabbatical around Christianity and Islam on these issues. And I didn't see it in the same way. But again, we certainly see it in Judaism that around learning, then it's, you know, uh, okay, you're really supposed to go full at it. We have uh, the statement that kinat sofim chokma, jealousy between sages increases wisdom. You're not supposed to have jealousy. Jealousy is a terrible midah, a terrible character trait. But when it's around learning, it increases wisdom. And we have a lot of other, a lot of other comments to that effect. Um, one of the mo most powerful ones that I've come across is from Rabbi Nachman of Breslin, uh, who's a very important teacher of mine. And he, after describing the Lurianic Kabbalistic description of the creation of the universe, which I'll just in a, uh, say in a word, that God was all, everything was God, uh, all was God's light and infiniteness, and God wanted to be in relationship with others and bestow goodness and compassion onto the world, but had nothing to do it to because everything was all one unity. So God therefore contracted God's self in a process that we can't understand rationally, but withdrew this light to the sides and created an empty vacated space. And within that empty vacated space, poured light into vessels that then became the, uh, that then became the um, everything. Basically, all creation, this table, me, you, our thoughts, everything was that. But that light was too great for those vessels, and it shattered. And all those shards that are all over the world, those are basically the creation and everything we have. And, uh, and so that's how creation was made. So Rabbi Nachman then goes on and says, <clears throat> in Source 7, he says that, quote, there is a quality to disagreement, machloket is the Hebrew word, there's a quality to disagreement that relates to the creation of the world. The essence of the creation of the world comes about through the, quote, empty space that I just described to you. Without this empty space, everything would be one endless unity. There would be no room for the creation of the world. Therefore, the light was withdrawn to the sides, creating an empty space. Out of this empty space, all creation happens. And Rinachman describes there that that's like the sages who are disagreeing with each other. If they all had the same opinion, it would be like the oneness of God there. But they ha they, what they do is they withdraw their light to the side, meaning I believe, you know, this oven is pure. I believe this oven is impure. And they're in machloket. They're in disagreement with each other. So they're opposing each other. Rabbi Nachman says that space between them and they're opposing each other, that's where creation happens. And if we, didn't, if we didn't have that disagreement between them, you would have no creation and nothing new coming out of it. But he warns, he says, the sages shouldn't talk too much. Because if they talk too much, then they're going to do the same shattering of the vessels is going to happen again. But if they can really make their arguments from that place, something new will happen. And that's a very positive aspect of machloket uh, and generative. Has anyone experienced that? 
Anything think in your own lives. Anyone experience that either in your learning or your anywhere where a disagreement really produced something new? Think about different things. I'm thinking about, again, you mentioned the budget process. You ever go through these conflictual processes where actually some, some growth happened from it? Or not. It just was like we're trying to minimize the damage. I mean, I think most of the time it's that. JJ. So this is not this is more like a philosophical thing, but mm-hmm. I like to read like Supreme Court opinions. Mm-hmm. Like if Scalia was alive and I'm reading the last day of the opposite of mm-hmm. like how I have like a American law constitutional approaches. And so mm-hmm. I would read him and be like, hmm, I disagree with this entirely. Yeah. But it makes me like reconsider you know, that viewpoint. Right. Like, how could I approach Dealing with certain aspects of like society or you know, reading about how American and stuff like that, yeah. that, that I find. Yeah. Like, that's where this comes from. Some kind of growth can come from there. Yep. I think that's most naturally where we would find that. It might be hard to apply it to more interpersonal conflicts. Um, although I think political debates, you really, that you really can have this. But again, that's, there's still a philosophical element there. But I think if we could do those well, we could have something creative come out of it. So it's something to think about. Like where, how can you make your conflicts generative? And that's what I want to move into now for our last, we got about 10 minutes, 15 minutes? Um, so I want, to, I want to move into that um, to finish up. So, so how, do we, um, how do we do this? How do we cultivate... Uh, a kind of a conflict that can be productive and generative like this. Uh, so let's look at this uh, source eight. And this is, this is the rabbinic statement about productive, or what we call constructive conflict. So we say, every dispute that is for the sake of heaven in the end will sustain. And that is not, and a, and a dispute that is not for the sake of heaven will not sustain. Now, the, it goes on to give us an example. Which is a dispute that is for the sake of heaven? This is the dispute between Hillel and Shammai. And what is one that's not for the sake of heaven? This is the dispute of Korach and his community. Okay, so you need some background, you know, for this text. But Hillel and Shammai were uh, two sages of about 2,000 years ago. And they, were, they would argue with each other, but they would argue, again, in this, same, in this kind of Torah way, a uh, very principled way of arguing. And they really disagreed about a lot of things and had very dis- different personalities. <coughs> but their kind of arguments, they say, would sustain. What do you think it means to sustain? If it's done for the sake, first of all, for the sake of heaven. What would be an argument for the sake of heaven? And then what is sustain? I was just thinking that if you're arguing for something that's of tremendous worth, that'll sustain, but the petty squabbles So give me an example. What would be like a big thing and what would be a petty thing? Right, and again, in some of those conflicts, they're really principled things about how people think, you know, society should be organized and these kind of things. Though, right, so if you're really getting at what might be the more philosophical or uh, essential type of issues, those will sustain because there's really not, we live in a world of a fractured truth. We don't, we don't have access to objective truth and say, this is it. So it ha- there has to be some humility there. And because of that, some of these issues are going to be argued forever uh, in this world. Those kind of things are going to sustain. But more 
when you say patio, they're arguing over stuff or maybe about, uh, you know, power in a certain way can be like, I want to be in charge. No, I want to be in charge. I want to be in charge. Like, that's a big deal. But those are the kind of things that don't necessarily sustain. And that's what Korach was. Korach was, was the, um, was Moses' uh, relationship cousin. Anyway, he was in line to be the, uh, the prince of one of the tribes of the Levites. And... Um, I can't remember if it was Moshe Aaron chose, but they basically chose someone else who was lower down in birth order to take over that tribe. And so the rabbis really look at Korach as this was a power dispute. And he felt passed over. He felt slighted of his, his basic honor was slighted. And, um, and he wanted the power. And so he went about and really created a populist rebellion against Moses saying, like, we're all holy, not just Moses. But it was really about power. That's what it was about for Korach. And so the rabbis are identifying that as not for the sake of heaven. It wasn't to try to achieve some kind of like deeper issue that we're dealing with. Now, to sustain can mean that the argument itself sustains because these things are really essential questions in any kind of society or anything. That'll sustain. Or it can also mean that the parties will sustain. Like there's something generative and healthy about being in these kind of debates when you do it in a way that's not about just power or, or um, you know, scoring points, but really is about principle, there's something that, that, that's healthy. And, and, and you will sustain. You will sustain in this. And you'll be able to come back to this and revisit it. Um, that's, a, that's, a construct, that's what we call constructive conflict. There has to be some detachment and some humility uh, if you're going to engage in those kind of conflicts in, in a constructive way. To know that I don't have the whole truth here. I don't. And that's very hard. But, but to really acknowledge that, then you're on your way to be able to have a constructive conflict. And I want to finish up with a last source that it gets to the point of when we're doing peacemaking, what is it ultimately we're really trying to, uh, trying to do, trying to create? Because if, if there's a con- – now, this is coming back to conflict. Before I was talking about really using peace proactively to identify what are the common values of a society or a family or community – uh, but when you are dealing with conflict and when one party has been wronged or slighted, um, what are you trying to do there when you're trying to bring them to, to peace? Uh, so this is a, 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 another uh, discussion among sages of around 1,800 years ago where they're, just, they're, they're, they're discussing um, what's the main principle of the Torah? Is it love your neighbor as yourself or is it that humans are created in the image of God? Those are two big ideas. Which one's the main one? So Ben Azai says, this is the book of the generations of humanity. And he means by that, meaning that humanity is created in the divine image. So he's saying, this is the great principle of Torah, that we're made in the divine image. Rabbi Akiva says, no, love your neighbor as yourself is the main idea of the Torah. The rabbis in the Midrash then challenge Rabbi Akiva and say, the problem with Rabbi Akiva's opinion is that love your neighbor as yourself is the main idea. What's the problem with that? If someone feels shamed, maybe they will think, if I'm shamed, I will bring shame to my neighbor with me. If I'm cursed, I will curse my neighbor with me. So love your neighbor as yourself, which is very relational, is also vulnerable to if you really feel bad about yourself or you, you, know, or you want to lash out at other people and you feel like you've been really wrong, well, you know, you're not gonna, that's not going to produce positive behavior. So Rabbi Tanchuma comes and says, this is why uh, having, uh, believing that humans made in divine image is most important because Know who you'll put to shame is in the likeness of God, if you're going to do that. So this idea that all humans are created in the image of God, that's the most bedrock, uh, solid, durable principle for the uh, positive pro-social relations between people. And this idea of what we call kavod, or basic essential dignity, I think that is what's being restored when we... um, when, we, uh, when, we're, when we're doing peacemaking, when people are having a conflict. And I'm going to talk more about this tonight, uh, but the difference between retributive justice and restorative justice. That retributive justice is basically a lot of how our system set up, is retribution. That when someone does something wrong, and this is a very, it comes from Roman, it's a Roman form of justice. When there's been wrongdoing, the person who committed the wrongdoing needs to be punished for that. And somehow that corrects something. Restorative justice is based on an approach that when someone wrongs another person, there's a relationship and, 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 and basic dignity that needs to be restored 
in that relationship because say you know things are here in equilibrium and then there's wrongdoing, someone's kavod was taken away, their kavod, their dignity was taken away uh, if they're hurt in a certain way, and uh, um, and we need to restore that dignity. And what we're doing in peacemaking is we are trying to restore that dignity to people and say that you are, you know, whatever was lost, you're, you're back up, you're dignified. And we see that in the importance of forgiveness. This is getting into a whole other area, but uh, how our, our teachings and our rabbis really emphasize that even if you kind of pay back everything you need to pay back, you know, when, you've, when you, you ram someone's car, you cause some kind of personal injury to them, you've paid everything off you need to pay, you still have to come and ask personally forgiveness for them because there's something there that needs to be restored. And I think it's both relationship and also uh, a sense of dignity for them. So to close, God's name is peace. I want to close with that. God's name is peace. Shalom or shalem is something that's big enough to hold all the disparate parts. And no human being can hold the whole. That's what makes us not God is because we're only a part of something. But shalom is where you can bring those disparate parts in. It could be someone's opinions about something, their, their, their uh, desires for something, but that you're making enough space to really hold everything together. And it's important to know that God loves justice. And our Torah tells us that all the time, God loves justice. And working with justice is essential, but God's name is peace. So we have to figure out a justice that is going to create space for all the different parts, uh, if we're really going to have a durable justice that's, that's going to last. So I hope these teachings were helpful in taking this out to your families and to your organizations and to our larger society, which, which needs it more now than ever. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.